Amen. Good morning. If you're new here, my name is Ricky. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Uh, quick, uh, quick note to drop in before our sermon time. Uh, in November, uh, one of our kind of uh, churches that we relate with and are friends with in El Paso, um, a, a, they're gonna, and another church really, are going to be co-hosting a seminar for women on how to interpret and teach the Bible. And so if you want to grow in your understanding of Scripture, you want to grow in your understanding of how to even uh, maybe lead Bible studies or consider teaching. Um, and let me just say, every single woman I know has opportunities to, to walk with people through the Bible. I mean, for some of you, for many of you, it may be even just as a mom where uh, you think about Timothy and all that God did through him in the era of the New Testament. Well, he, uh, Paul basically says, listen, that, that's your mom and your grandmother who've invested into you that you're kind of leading and teaching out of. So uh, that seminar is going to be in November, November 10th. Uh, so take the day, uh, press into that. And then beginning of next year, we're also going to be hopefully, God willing, doing a, a, a study group for women uh, who want to learn to interpret scripture and be able to teach others. So uh, be on the lookout for that. But this is a great starting place uh, if you're interested in that world, okay? Uh, brochures are available on the back table. We'd love to see you participate in that. Well, with that, let's open to Ephesians chapter 2, church. We're going to continue our series on the book of Ephesians, uh, walking passage after passage through the book together. Now, as we read the text today, one of the things I thought would be appropriate is we're going to read the section we covered a few weeks ago about how God has made, has brought us near to himself and near to one another. And then Paul in verses 19 through 22 is going to talk about our, our corporate identity as the church. What does it mean to be the church? What does it mean to be together? And so what I thought would be appropriate is we're going to read, I will read verses 11 through 18, the previous section, and then when we get to verses 19 through 22, which would be on the screen behind me, I'd love to have you say or recite the scripture with me as a way of almost reinforcing this identity with one another before we even jump in, okay? So my part, verses 11 through 18, your part together, uh, Verses 19 through 22. This is God's word. Verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility." By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to God the Father. And let's now say this together. So then, 
you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. And Father, I pray that you would help us. I pray specifically, Lord, that as we open your word, we would lay aside whatever our personal thoughts are on the church and the nature of the church, even our experience of the church, whether it was good or bad or indifferent, Lord. And I pray that we would receive from you, as if from you, what you say about who we are together. In his name we pray, amen. Well, in verses 11 through 18, we, uh, last time we were in Ephesians, talked about our longing to belong and how the longing to belong is, is deep within the heart of every single human being. But that longing to belong is most fundamentally a longing for our creator. Really, it's a longing in a sense for Eden to, to be with the Lord, to walk with the Lord, in not just in right relationship with the Lord, but when that is right, in right relationship to one another. And we saw in Ephesians 11 through 18 that God has made it possible for us to, in a sense, belong to the Lord again, to walk with the Lord, to relate to the Lord, to be reconciled to the Lord. And when that happens, we are also then reconciled to others who are in Christ with us. Now today, though, we are going to see that the belonging that we long for is directed at God, but it is expressed through the church. That longing is directed at God, but it's expressed through the church. Now, everyone longs to belong to a people, to, to have a people that is kind of their people. Uh, one of my, I love uh, stories, and one of my favorite story tropes that I, it's one of my three jokes that I, I make. I only make three jokes, and I'm going to give you one of them. One of my favorite story tropes is at the end of the movie or whatever, somebody will look at the other character and go, well, we lost the treasure, but maybe the real treasure is the friends we made along the way. And you're like, oh, well, this adorable group of kids that found a treasure map and went on this whole thing, and then the pirate ship sank at the end. And it's okay, though, because the real treasure is the friends they made along the way. And the great thing about that is pretty much I'll just, at the end of any movie or show I watch, I'll just, I'll just repurpose that. At the end of a season of The Mandalorian, I'll look at my boys and say, well, boys, maybe, maybe the real Mandalorians were the friends they made along the way. And let's feel like, oh my gosh, I'm sure they're going to hate this by the time they turn 18. Uh, right now, it feels like very fresh material, and they're like, great. And this is, the, this is it occurs again and again and again in almost every story, right? Essentially, if you watch that long-running uh, show, The Office, essentially, The Office ends with a voiceover saying, maybe the real office was the friends we made along the way. That's literally the monologue. You can go back and rewatch it. That's what it was. And why does this keep occurring again and again and again? Why do we keep using it again and again and again? Because I think it expresses this deep fundamental longing that we have, right? We, we in the end, don't really want just a pile of gold. Uh, we want 
friends. We want people. We want family. And we will look for this anywhere and everywhere today. We look for it in online communities, in sports clubs, in political movements, in gaming, in fire teams, in gangs, in our workplace, with our coworkers, in that perfect city or that perfect neighborhood that then finally we will find our people and belong. Meanwhile, church attendance in America is in something of a, how would you describe it, a free fall. Uh, Gen X went to church and is going to church less than the baby boomers, and the millennials are going less than the Gen Xers, and Gen Z is going, can you predict the trend, less than the millennials. And what is the most common reason people give for not attending? It's not actually that they don't like the music which is what everybody thought in the 90s, I guess. Um, And it's not the style of teaching either. It's not even the convenience of service times. It is, according to Pew Research in a recent study, simply this, that they think they can worship in other ways on their own. Meaning, I don't really need those people. I can do this by myself. but, But you see the juxtaposition of these two things. Deeply, we long to belong to a group of people, and yet we're kind of looking at the group of people in the church and going like, I don't know. I think I'm all right, right? Maybe you're looking around this room and thinking that today. We long to belong, but we don't think that we will find that fulfilled in the church. And so the headline today is simply, humanity longs for what God has done in the church. Surprisingly, it's true. Uh, We're going to look at four specific images briefly walking through each one, and and we're going to see how that longing in the human heart is actually pointed toward God through the church. And so the first one is this. God has given us a homeland. Verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Now, remember the context here, right? You have this Jewish and Gentile divide in the Ephesian church, and this is mostly a Gentile church with some Jewish people, and Paul has been laying out the fact that the relationship between these two broad groups has been very broken, and both of them have animosity toward one another. Both of them think they're above the other in different ways, and yet Paul diagnoses their problem being a common problem, that they both have a broken relationship with God. And so Jesus comes. He dies on the cross, in, and, and when he dies on the cross, by dying in their place for their sins, he reconciles them to the God that they were made to belong to. And surprisingly, when that reconciliation happens between them and God, it actually reconciles them to one another. Meaning if God draws this person who's over here to himself and this person who's over here to himself, all of a sudden they find themselves together. And so, this is what Paul has been saying. But Paul is not content to say, therefore, church in Ephesus, stop squabbling internally. Just be nice to each other. Knock it off, as a parent sometimes says, right? No, he says something far more radical. He says, listen, you were once strangers, you were once aliens to God and to each other, but now you are fellow citizens. What does that mean? It means that they now have the same homeland, the same city. And for the Jewish people, as they thought of their homeland and their city, they would have thought of what Jerusalem, right? This this city on a hill wrapped up in history. They would have thought of that homeland, even living in Ephesus. There would have been an orientation toward that city, and that's the source of their identity. 
Or for those in Ephesus, their, their orientation was probably pointed either to the city of Ephesus or back to Rome. And then there would have been a very small group of people in Ephesus who would have been Ephesian citizens, would have had full citizenship, right? And so those people would have been like, oh, man, they run this town. This is their city. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Your city is no longer that old Jerusalem geographically or Rome or Ephesus. Your city is the city of God. Your homeland is no longer that strip of land or this strip of land, but rather the homeland of New Eden that God is bringing his people towards, right? Look, this, this longing for a homeland is deep within us. Listen, it was yesterday, um, I went with my dad and sister to the UTEP football game, and it would happen to be kind of uh, the Military Appreciation Sunday, uh, Veteran Appreciation Sunday, uh, not Sunday, uh, Saturday. And so they, they did some really cool things. They had a bunch of service members with a giant flag. I mean, this, this flag was like half, you know, a third of the stadium uh, size on the field. And then as we did the national anthem, with the band played the national anthem, as they did it, out of nowhere... In formation, four Apache helicopters come flying over the stadium, and everybody is just sitting there unmoved, like, oh, yeah, well, this is whatever. You know, no, everybody is sitting there, and they were, I mean, their hearts were soaring when the band started playing. Their hearts were soaring further when the flag gets unfurled. But then when the Apache helicopters came out, man, we were like, let's go. Let's go. Let's win World War II all over again, man. <laughs> like that, that feeling inside of us is deep. Now, listen, we, we have much to thank God for in, in, in the countries that he has put us in. He's, we have much to thank God for in our country, the United States of America. But, but Paul is saying, listen, there is a truer country even than the country we were born in, a truer city to us than even the city we were born in, and it is the homeland of God. It is the city of God. Therefore, our nature as a church is that we are ambassadors. Every church, the picture in the New Testament, is something of an embassy. We live in our cities, but we represent another city. We live in our country, but we, in a sense, represent another country. And we long for that. That longing really is pointed back to Eden. And in Christ, it's now pointed forward to the new Eden, to the new Jerusalem, to the new homeland that one day we will arrive at. So Christian, where do you look? Where do you point that longing for a homeland, that longing for a city, that longing for a people in that way? Now, we should pray for our earthly country. We should do good to all insofar as we can. We should love justice and uh, do justice and love mercy and love kindness, as Micah calls us to. But we must remember that most fundamentally, underneath even that longing is a deeper longing for the city of God and that we express that through the church. Second, God has given us a family says, not only are fellow citizens, Paul switches the metaphor almost immediately to you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Now, it's one thing to share common citizenship, but it's another to be gathered around the family dinner table together. Now, these people, remember Jews and Gentiles, they are not bound by the blood of their mothers and fathers together or their grandparents or their great-grandparents. They are not even bound by the blood of the Jewish people going back to Abraham, but what Paul is saying is they all now have, in a sense, the same blood running in their veins, the blood of Jesus. 
And as they gather and hear this letter read in, a, in an assembly, probably much like this one, they will have different accents as people are speaking. But they will have the same heavenly Father. They will have different skin tones, but they will have the same spirit inside them. And remember that, that families in this area, when, when Paul is referring to a household, he's referring to these large households often that had multiple generations living together, uh, even servants and their families living together. And when families gathered, when a household threw a party, it was a giant party, right? Paul is, is not thinking of a small, kind of a strange you know, family where maybe they see each other once a year on Thanksgiving and there's four people and it's a little awkward. Now, Paul is like, no, no, no. His, his view is this is a big, giant party. I mean, I mean, think of, I guess it's already Christmas time now, apparently, in October. So think of Christmas and Thanksgiving, which we apparently are nearly at. The turkey, right? Toys of nieces and nephews on the floor, laughter in the air, football on the TV, people uh, playing in the backyard, right? This is, this is what Paul is saying. This is what we are meant to be, not just fellow citizens who were kind of like, okay, salute each other in the street and then go home to their separate lives, but a family who express their identity by living together as a family. Now, this is the good news of Man, the good news of Ephesians 2 is this. If your family growing up was not a good family, if you find yourself uh, widowed or separated, if, if, if you feel estranged from your earthly family, the good news of Ephesians 2 is this. You have a new family in Christ. Look, in our culture, there's this kind of this buzzword going around sort of, you know, pop therapy or pop psychology, you know, uh, circles called found family. Everybody's looking for their found family. So everybody realizes their natural family is the worst, and so they're like, I'm going to have a found family. These people are my family, right? And here's the thing. There, something in there is, is, is right in that, okay, the, we all sense, listen, if, if my family failed, I can create a family, right? But the problem is this. We then just come together. What are we bound by? by common interests, by, by political ideologies, by ge geography until somebody moves away? What, what binds us together? Look, this is where the church has been, as it is in so many things, 2,000 years ahead of the curve in saying you have a found family in Christ. These people bound not by the skin color uh, that you see in front of you, nor by their accent, nor by their background, but by being united to Christ. And you united to Christ now are united to them. So they truly are, in a sense, your family. Church, we are the household of God. We are the family of God. And do you see the church, then, as a place you go to, to find family and, and create family in Christ? Well, in a sense, that, that, that's not even correct. Christ has created our family in Christ. Do we go there to, to, to do we point our longing for family, that, that big giant Thanksgiving meal that never ends, at the people of God that God has given us to live out our identity as family? Third, then, God has given us a cause. Verse 20 talks about being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure is being joined together. And then actually, 
the metaphor, I think, from looking at the text actually is that and then switches one last time uh, when it speaks of a temple. So this part, this, this verse 20 and 21, I think is specific to a, a great building cause. It talks about being built on this and Jesus the cornerstone and we're all being joined together, right? The nature of the church is so multifaceted that there's no one metaphor that Paul's like, well, it's just like a family. Well, it is, but it's also like a homeland, well, it is, but it's also like a building project, right? It's because what God has done can't even be expressed fully in one single metaphor. So here's the image. Not only do we have common passports in our wallets, not only are we around the Thanksgiving meal table together, but we leave that and take up a great grand building project with one another. We wake up the next day after Thanksgiving, as it were, and go to work together. Now, we learn four glorious things about this building project. First, it has a trustworthy foundation. It talks about being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now, the language here is most likely referring to the apostles and prophets who specifically ministered and laying the foundations of the church through church planting, through uh, their decisions like the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, through uh, Scripture, right? God speaking through them to give us Scripture, now, later in the New Testament, we will see people doing apostolic, sent one kind of work like Timothy or Titus, and we'll also see in 1 Corinthians other people prophesying, but not infallibly. Paul is saying test everything, right? So what is Paul referring to here? Well, he's referring to the specific technical uh, foundational work through apostles and prophets that lays the foundation for the church. And that is utterly unique. It means that the foundation of the church is not someone's good idea, but it is God working through people to establish the pattern of church in the New Testament and, and breathe out scripture through the people that then establish that work infallibly through the canon of scripture. Right? That then means this, that the foundation of the church and its work is steady and sturdy and unchanging, and in 50 years, somebody's not going to have a bright idea that's the new foundation. I don't, know if been, I don't know if you've been following this. I'm following it just for amusement, that, that at one point, one of the richest, I think he's the richest man in the world, Elon Musk, right, decides, I'm going to buy Twitter. I'm buying it. I think I'm going to buy it. I'm going to do it. I'm, buy, I'm buying it. It's happening. And then he was like, actually, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to buy Twitter. And they're like, we're going to sue you and make you buy it. He's like, you know what? I love it. I love it. I'm buying Twitter again. I'm, I, I don't think it's impossible that he might decide not to do it again. But I think you, you, you see something in that of, of the instability of like this political leader or this figure or this thing or this idea or this thing that's all the rage or this philosophical system that we're like, yeah, we figured it out finally. None of those are the foundation of the church. The foundation of the church is the pattern of the church laid out in Holy Scripture. That's the foundation. It doesn't move. Second, it is built with a trustworthy pattern. Not only a trustworthy foundation, but a trustworthy pattern. The word cornerstone here means the first stone that is, that, that, that is laid down, and that sets the entire pattern for the rest of the structure. It sets the orientation of the structure. It sets the angle of the structure. It sets the, the, the place, the establishment of the structure. And that pattern, that first stone, is Jesus himself, right? His life, death, resurrection, and teaching are the cornerstone off of which everything else in the church is built. 
That is even more trustworthy in a sense. Well, it can't, you can't pit Scripture against Jesus, so I couldn't say that. But Scripture, the breathed, living Word of God, and Jesus, God in the flesh, right? What, what could be a more secure foundation than that? Nothing. Third thing we learn is that it is then built by every single Christian. The structure is not meant to be built with some Christians, not meant to be built with pastors or some gifted Christian leaders. It is built with every single redeemed son or daughter that has been called to this work and is a part of this work. Paul is speaking here to the whole gathered assembly of the church, and he's basically saying, in whom the home structure being joined together grows together. And he ends by saying, in him you also are being built together. Meaning, if you're sitting here and you're like, okay, that's good, I'm glad the church is going to be doing something. No! It means you are going to be doing something. Like, well, I don't, I'm not super gifted. doesn't matter. I'm pretty new here. I just got here like a couple weeks ago. Welcome! It's okay. Every single Christian united to Christ is then called to be united to the work of God in building the church. That is our great cause. What could be a greater cause? It's backed by Jesus' promise that the gates of hell themselves will not prevail against the church. No other organization has that backing. Long after all the Fortune 500 companies fail, long after America perhaps is a distant memory, the church will endure. Now, look, let me speak to the, uh, the younger Christians here in particular. I am, a, as I've said before, a geriatric millennial, the oldest of the millennials. So let me, as a grandfather figure to you millennials, speak <laughs> now. Statistically, millennials are very cause-oriented, meaning this. Uh, they, they love like buying socks that help homeless people, or they, they love getting, buying malaria net. Especially, and this is the, the, the data, is this. If you ask millennials to give to like an organization that helps people not die of malaria, they're like, well, okay, maybe. But if you're like, buy one specific mar- like, like, uh, uh, malaria net for this guy in this village, and here's a picture of him, millennials are like, awesome. And here's what's interesting. I think a little bit of it, let me just say this, because I'm a millennial. A little bit of it is like, we want to be the hero, the specific hero. We want to be like, I'm the person that gave Bob his net in Zimbabwe. Like, I, I did that. Or maybe, if I could just be more charitable, perhaps it's just, it's just okay, I just like seeing tangibly that this is doing some good. Look, other things millennials give themselves to may or may not be good depending on the cause and the method. Things like political activism, things like protests, right? We're always up for a protest, especially Gen Z. We love a cause, but let me just plead with you, friends. We often neglect the cause above all causes, the church of Jesus Christ. The thing, the thing, the only thing that prevents eternal suffering is the gospel of Jesus Christ preached through the church of Jesus Christ. Look, we do good things. We help people. We display, we adorn the reality of the gospel being proclaimed. But at the end of the day, the church of Jesus Christ is the vehicle that God himself has used, backed by the promise of Jesus for 2,000 years to spread the message of the gospel from here to India to Africa and everywhere in between. 
The track record's pretty solid. This is the cause that we're called to. Fourth, God has given us himself. Briefly here, since we already touched on this a couple weeks ago, it's being reemphasized, so we're going to reemphasize it, that we are being joined together and growing into a holy temple in the Lord. We are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So not only are we common citizens, not only are we family, not only do we take up a great cause together, but the purpose of this is that we might grow into a holy temple in the Lord. Now, remember who Paul is talking to. Their reference point was a temple of Artemis, one of the seven great wonders of the ancient world, alongside the pyramids and and all of those other things, is this temple in their city. People would come from miles and miles and miles around, making long journeys with bruised feet at great expense. Why? To get close to the temple of Artemis. And here's the thing. Artemis didn't live at the temple, right? In Greek mythology, all the gods, they lived on Mount Olympus, or Roman mythology. They, they, they lived far off. The best they could do, it's like, listen, the best I can do is I promise I'll stop by sometimes. We'll see, you know? So Artemis is like, listen, I'm not going to live down there, ugh, man, but I will stop by, okay? So here's what you did. As somebody following Artemis, you walk for miles and miles and miles with bruised feet at your own expense to get close to the temple of Artemis that you might have a shot at petitioning the goddess for fertility for a son or daughter. Maybe she'll listen. Do you, do you see what Paul is doing? He's undercutting this entire city by saying this. You, Christian, do not have a God who dwells far off, but a God who dwells near. And you don't have a God who just dwells near where you can visit the temple sometimes. You are the temple. So it's not as though God visits the temple sometimes or you visit the temple sometimes. No, it is a perpetual dwelling with God in the church. That is what God is doing. Do you see, do you see this, this imagery? It, it even is harking back to Eden itself. This place where God dwelt with people in his image, where all is perfect and at rest, where perfect shalom fills the temple in the garden. And what we're looking at, remember, in Revelation, is that renewed Eden. It's no accident that the tree of life is there. It's no accident that the river of life is there. It's no accident that there there is no temple there because the temple is the people of God. And Paul is saying right now, you can almost imagine him saying this right now, even as you gather Christians, the presence of God uniquely rests with his assembled people. If you've ever been here and felt like, you know what, man, I felt like God, God did something in my heart today. No surprise. Paul says, yeah, that's what he does. He lives in this temple. Uh, let, let, me, let me give you something from Chesterton, right? Chesterton once quipped, at least it's attributed to Chesterton, and then there's some, well, nobody knows. So let's just attribute it to Chesterton. Every, Chesterton once said, every young man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. 
And it's true. Our, our restless Gen Z, our idealistic millennials, our rebel Gen Xers, our boomers, maybe longing for the good days of the past, all of them are looking for God. That is why people don't come to church. People don't come to church because they think they can find the peace, fulfillment, hope, joy, uh, life out there somewhere. Whether it's on the golf course or in a stadium or in the office or in the arms of a lover or at a little league baseball game. But we long, deep down, we long for something transcendent. And that longing is a longing for the creator himself, the one who knows us, the one who fashioned us, the one who delights as a father over his children, the hero who never fades, the husband who loves his church, right? We long for God himself. And what Paul is doing is he's saying, do you see, you meet that God in the temple of his people. What he's saying is, is absolutely stunning. Listen, God, I think if Paul were here, he wouldn't say, listen, you should come to church because we have donuts. You should come to church because, listen, this is one of the most common reasons, because your kids need some kind of moral foundation, those little pagans. <laughs> you know? You, you should come to church because you will learn some good life principles for your marriage. Like, by God's grace, all of that's going to happen. But you know I think what Paul would say? Paul would say, come to church to encounter the living God that you were made for. That's why we gather. So let me just ask you, friend, as we end here, do you connect your longing for transcendence and your longing for God to the gathered people of God? Do you see that the two go together? It's not over here and over here. They're together. That is what we long for. And let me just end with this. I'm, I'm going to take just an extra second here because I just feel like the Lord, I had this. I, didn't, I was like, I don't know, Lord. I think the Lord wants me to share this. Um, let me just end here with this. Perhaps you're like, listen, I love it. I love the idea of it, but, but I have been banged up by the church. Like, I hear everything you're saying. I would love a family. I would love a homeland. I'd love a cause where I get to work with one another. I'd love to encounter God, but you don't understand what's in my background. I've been banged up by people in the church. I was failed by a leader. I was failed by a church. And now I'm like, I don't know. Listen, I, I think... I think if that's you, I just want to say, listen, I, it, if you truly have been wronged by the church or by someone in the church, I grieve that. I grieve it. I think Jesus himself would grieve it. But I think I would, I would plead with you two different things if you're kind of at arm's length from the church now. The first is this. Recognize that the nature of the church is that the church is a group of flawed sinners trying to follow Jesus and look more and more like him. Right? This, that's the nature of it. There is no church that's like, oh, they're fully sanctified now. And so some truly may, may not even be Christians, but others may be Christians and still, oh, still they struggle with sin. And we are all part of that, right? Spurgeon quipped that, that, that if you found a perfect church, you should never join it because you would spoil it. <laughs> like, don't do it. If you see it, like, great, then run away. Just leave it, right? Because we know each of us, oh, man, I, I contribute my own junk to this. Remember that. Second, let me just say this. Recognize that walls are not the same as foundations. The, the walls of the church being built with living stones at times are flawed. Sometimes a section of the wall needs to be taken out and a, and a new section put in or torn up and, and, and rebuilt. But walls are not the same as foundations. Nobody with a crack in their wall and a solid foundation would say, you know what, listen, the, there's a crack in the wall, uh, we're just going to take the foundation out. 
you know? And the people, you know, construction crews like, I think your foundation's okay. And they're like, nope, it's got a crack. And take it out, right? And let me just say, this is one of the things I think is going on with, with this deconstruction, reconstruction thing, if you've heard about this in the church, is often that people will confuse walls for foundations. And they'll go, listen, listen, th- this whole section of the wall, that's bad. We got to tear the foundation out and start again. Who knows what truth is? Who knows what parts of the Bible are real? I don't know. Do you know? Let's tear it out and let's start over. And this is what I would just plead with you. I'd plead with you, Christian, if you're there. Look down on the foundation. It is trustworthy. It is true. It is solid. The church has sat upon it for over 2,000 years, and it will sit upon it. And one day, the church will be perfected. And one day, you too will be perfected. And one day, that hurt will be healed and made beautiful as you see God's full design for what he's doing in creation. Amen? Let's stand and uh, sing together. Lord, I pray as we end, Lord, that you would give us, Lord, you'd give us a sense of wonder, even as we close in singing, Father, as we close in reading scripture, you'd give us a sense of wonder that you've reconciled us to yourself and reconciled us to one another. God, there are people in this room that we would never, (laughs) never be friends with uh, apart from the grace of God. Age groups that would never be together apart from the grace of God. People with different backgrounds and ethnicities and lives that would never be family except for by the grace of God. But yet, God, what you have done, even in an expression through cross of grace, not that we're the whole church, but we just look at our little corner, God. What you've done in and through us is amazing and glorious. So what I pray, I pray that we would be a, a, a group of Christians who embrace their identity as common citizens, embrace their identity as family, embrace their identity as being co-workers on this great common cause, and embrace their identity as being the temple of God, the place where he dwells with his people, that every Sunday we gather is a foretaste of that final day. Lord, our hearts long for Eden. Our hearts long to to be in, in fellowship with you in that unhindered way. We long to walk with you And we look forward to that one day where the tree of life will bloom again and the river of life will flow and there will be no need for a sun or moon or light because God himself will be with them as their light. So in light of that, God, right now, today, I pray that you would help us enjoy and thank God for this glimpse, this glimpse of one day what the church will become. In the name of Jesus, amen.